0: Um, we're going to be in Philippians 3 today, and continuing in our in our series of Christ at the Center. And so, so today we're going to talk a little bit about Christian maturity and kind of what that means. Paul gets into that. And um, <clears throat> so first I will read this passage. Just follow along in your heads. Philippians 3. I'm going to start in verse 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me and is safe for you. Verse 2, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh That depends on faith. Verse 10 That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and share in his sufferings, becoming like him in death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Verse 12 Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time here. Holy Spirit, I ask you to guide my words as you have guided my study. We thank you that when your word goes forth, you have a purpose for it. And we ask that that purpose would be done in this room today. And you speak specifically to people in this place, with things that they need to hear to change and to grow to be more like you. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. It's good to be here. I'm super excited. I'll try to go slow. Like somebody told me once, hey, you go pretty fast. All right, I'll try to calm down. (laughs) So, So Paul's overall goal in this letter... In this, in, in this letter to like the Philippians, just to, is to help them to grow and to and learn how to be Christians, right? This is all pretty new. This is all new stuff, and so he wants them to be more like Christ and to mature in their faith. Um, and it's this one is quite personal. It, he's he's really has a fond place in his heart for this church of the Philippians. The language in here, he's like he really loves this church that he started, and. You know he 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 commends them for their faithfulness for their their support of his ministry and to their testimony um to the gospel and um in chapter two last week, uh, Rob brought us the message and we learned and he focused on humility. the greatest example of humility as we learned in chapter two is christ himself and Christ modeled this for us. Um, Jesus even modeled it all the way to dying a death he did not deserve. On a cross, a Roman execution device. Right, Christ suffered uh, in a very humiliating and humble way, and so he continued uh, last week in in his examples by talking about Timothy and Epaphroditus. So, if you if remember, Timothy was like Paul's protege, his his younger uh, pastor in training, and he was um, pastoring a, a different church at the time, and Epaphroditus was uh, an elder from the Philippian church who had traveled a long way to help Paul out to probably to bring him a gift from the church and he got really sick and almost died on that on that journey and so those are the two examples that we got um, of humility from paul 's immediate uh, life and the people he knew and so he continues at the beginning of this chapter with a charge for them to be to be joyful in the light of the glorious nature of being in the body of Christ, of which he's very he's very proud of them, he has this fatherly attitude towards the flipping church. To be on the in the body of Christ is to be in the greatest team in existence, and um, we agree with him on that. So, jumping ahead, I'm going to start off by reading verse 15, and then this will give us an idea of where we're headed today. So, verse 15, um, it says, "Let those of us who are ma- who are mature think." this way. And so as we go through this, we're going to see what it means to be mature in the faith, and he's going to sum that up and he's going to give us this, this set of truths and he's saying, Hey, take this information that I'm giving you. I'm writing to you, church who I love, and think like this. Think this way. Um, Colossians 1 says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. We read Colossians at the beginning. Thanks, Jason, for leading us in that. And Paul's goal is to warn and teach so that um, this church, the Philippians, and by extension, us, can be found mature in Christ. First Corinthians 14.20, Paul also writes to another church. He says, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. And so that's, what we're gonna, that's where we're going to be. That's what we're going to talk about today. And so we peeked ahead, so to speak, and we'll spend the rest of our time exploring just what he's telling us to think about when he says, think like this. So although we get the idea that this church was thriving, the Philippians, um, he takes some time to teach them about the proper relationship of the law and for good reason. Um, having been saved by grace, having been justified, you know, adopted, and, and continuing in sanctification, the Philippian church was still under attack, and they still had these issues. And they are put in danger from this group of people that are essentially legalists, and they make many appearances in Paul's letters to the churches. In verse 2, he says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And a lot of other versions say evil workers or workers of evil. Paul refers to these enemies of the gospel as dogs, evil workers, and mutilators of the flesh. Uh, in other letters, he refers to them as the Judaizers and the circumcision party. You guys probably remember these terms. Um, so why the strong language, right? This, this is tough stuff. This is strong language. Well, in the Hebrew culture... Dogs were an unclean animal. They had these these clean and unclean clean rules with all these different animals that they couldn't touch. They weren't – to have a dog in your house would, that we do, like, they would not do that. That was something they didn't do. And so that was like an insult, and they – the insult that the Jews had for anyone who's a, who was a non-Jew was the word dogs. They would call them dogs. And so this comes off as pretty uh, insulting. And so to these Jews, it would have been – The height of like, what are you, you know, what are you talking about? And he's making a point here. And then the second term he uses is evil workers. And it's those who are actively working against Christ in his church. They're actively presenting an anti-gospel, working against uh, what Paul is trying to build in the churches that he's starting. And the last phrase he uses is mutilators of the flesh. And so, this is a reference to circumcision itself. And if if you guys remember, a quick recap, probably about a month ago, we learned about Abraham. And God made a covenant with Abraham, and he instituted with this like external sign, hey, I want you to do this, I want your sons to do this, and, and uh, keep doing it until I say stop. So this became codified in the Mosaic Law, right? Moses came and... Um, he wrote down the, the Torah. He wrote down the law. And, but ultimately, this sign was fulfilled in Christ and his work on the cross. And the ancient physical symbol pointed ahead to a work done by the Holy Spirit in the hearts of his people. And so these, these evil workers were essentially working evilly hard. They were working hard to, to force these new Gentile Christians who had no connection... To Judaism, and no connection to like this historical Hebrew faith, they wanted them to essentially do this thing to become saved essentially and Paul has a lot of problems with that, and for good reason, he talks about that in a lot of his letters um, so when he he calls them the circumcision party because that was that was kind of their their focus that was this main thing that they 're all about hey you know if you're if you 're coming to Christ, we need to do all this this old this old stuff, including, and most importantly, this uh, symbol of circumcision, which God uh, made as a part of the covenant with Moses. And he actually he actually calls, in, in a clever way, he uses the word concision to describe the circumcision party. And so the Greek word is concision. Um, the English here translated as mutilators of the flesh. And he's basically saying, he's he's calling attention to the the damage and the pointlessness of this thing that they're trying to force onto these new uh, Gentile Christians. Um, so there, there's a definite um, issue here, and he's he's using really strong language. So the the act of circumcision added nothing to one's salvation, and this this kind of legalism, Paul is saying, is basically worthless. Um, he's making the case that it's this. This bean counting kind of a righteousness is actually more it's worse than worthless worthless, it's dangerous. He says, he's telling us that legalism it would diminish the work of Christ because you're requiring something other than Christ. And if you were to believe or have faith in some act, then you would essentially not be believing or not having faith in the the real thing that can save you, and that's Christ. Alone, he's at the center of the gospel. Um, so, if there's if there's a belief or whatever that like my good deeds are are what saves me, then I'm replacing this false. Uh, I'm replacing what really saves me with something that doesn't, and that's faith in the wrong thing. So, you know, the danger is eternal souls, right? The danger is people are putting their faith and not being saved. So. This is why he's using such harsh language. And so the, the Philippian church, these guys are, they're doing well. He's, he's overall very pleased with them, but he's warning them. He's saying, Hey, look out for this. This is a real issue. These guys are, are sneaking in and they're getting you guys to, to think that there's something else you have to do to add to your salvation. He says, they will, re- they will destroy your faith, so watch out. There's a strong warning here at the beginning of this chapter. Verse 3. Paul flips the script on these guys. He says, for we are the circumcision. Talking about himself and the flipping church. He says, we're the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God. We glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And so He's regard. He's um, urging these believers to disregard this outside idea that's coming in and replacing the gospel. So he's saying, "What truly matters is quote unquote circumcision of the heart." Now we were in Romans a couple week back, and if you guys remember, he makes this case in chapter two. He says the legalistic, like the moralistic Jews, are just in much of a need of salvation as like the total outsiders these Gentiles who didn't know God had no rituals they were just in much of need of salvation Romans 2.29 says but a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit not by the letter his praise is not from man but from God When he says not by the letter, he's talking about the letter of the law. So, as we continue, there's something we have to think about remember here. Obedience to God is not not legalism. We are called to obey our Lord. Having saved us through faith in Christ and uh, brought us into his kingdom, he now desires for us to walk in the good works that he prepared for us, right? He prepared these good works for us to do before the beginning of the universe. And... They will fall in line with his own law because his law is perfect. Ephesians 2, 8 to 10 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. Remember that. No one can boast. Verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created for, created in Jesus Christ for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so in Christ, our righteous status has been made complete, right? We're considered righteous by God because of the work Jesus did. Now, God's law is perfect, and it perfectly demonstrates our need for a Savior because we cannot follow the law on our own. One slip-up is is to fall afoul of the whole thing. And we're all in that that situation as as, uh, human beings. Um, Christ has fulfilled the demands of the law on us, and so now we can live in the spirit. It's this idea of the spiritual circumcision rather than by the letter, as he says. When you see him saying by the letter, he's talking about by the letter of the law. Okay. So let's look back at the text in verse 3. He follows this up with the fact that we're the circumcision. We, here's, here's three things we do. We glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. We glory in Christ Jesus and we put no confidence in the flesh and we worship by the spirit of God. So faith is something, faith in something is to have confidence in that thing. So when you see that word confidence, you can kind of think of okay, this is this is faith in something. Now, no confidence Is like would be like saying I have no faith. So when someone gets you know kicked out of office because some vote of no confidence, it means I, like literally, no faith in that guy. So it's the opposite of faith. So faith in the flesh, faith in my person, what I can do, would be to would would be to have no confidence in the work of Christ. If I believe that right here I've got everything I need to be saved, then I am decreasing my faith in what really saves, right? And on the other hand, having no confidence in the flesh, no confidence in what I could do, allows our faith to remain where it belongs, and that's in Christ alone. Um, One pastor said, The doctrine of justification by faith alone reminds us that our acceptance of God is grounded on nothing in us. Faith alone reminds us that our acceptance of God is grounded on nothing in us. It's grounded on something done for us, outside of us by Jesus Christ, and we merely receive it by faith. Guys, this is the gospel. It's outside of us, and it's not on us. Because we, if we had to choose Christ, we would not choose Christ. And I don't know about you, I spent time in my life not choosing Christ because... I was unsaved at some point. Um, It's by his mercy that we can even accept him in faith. It's grounded on something done for us, outside of us, and nothing in us. It's an important point. Um, To understand that is to understand the gospel. Um, When God chose Paul to spread the gospel to the world, think about all the the people that God could have chose for that job. He could have picked... The you know the nice old widow that everybody loved who who dropped her two pennies into the into the offering basket, but he chose Paul. He chose the perfect person to make this extremely strong point. And if you think about it, there's it's unlikely that anyone in this in this like the Judaizer, the circumcision party, at least, he's warning against these guys over here. It's really unlikely that any of them would have the same credentials as Paul himself. Paul was like top notch, right? According to their their standards their rules, their law. He was the guy. He had it made. He was doing very well. Um, He was essentially the ultimate legalist uh, before meeting Christ on the road to Damascus. And so of all people, he he says, I, if anyone could have confidence in the flesh, I could be that guy. Um, Confidence in the flesh, remember, faith, he could have faith in his own abilities, in his own legalistic uh, perfection. And so, to summarize or paraphrase verses four to six, he's basically saying, "Here's my credentials. On paper, man, no one's better. On paper, I'm perfect." He's almost bragging here, but he he has a point. Um, he's, I was circumcised after my birth, you know, on the eighth day, in per- precise obedience to like this this Jewish law, and I'm like, a, I'm, a, I'm a member of this certain tribe, which is like better than other tribes because they're. You know, there, there's a reason for that, and he's he's laying out his pedigree. He's laying out his pedigree to make a point. He says, "My deeds were perfect. My credentials were perfect. According to the law, I was I was just I had it. I was the best of the best." And he says, "I was a Hebrew of Hebrews," and that's a superlative, a superlative is saying like the best of the best. It's like saying good, better, best, holy of holies. He's saying I was the best possible. Hebrew and because of this person that God chose to bring the gospel to the Gentiles the point of Christ alone is more clearly and distinctly made when he lays out his pedigree and he takes that thing and he just tosses it in the trash for what why would he why would he do that it's, it's crazy right he says for the surpassing worth of Of knowing Christ Jesus. Verse 8, he says, Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of their surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He continues, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as refuse. Refuse. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own based on the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Verse 10, he says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and share and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in death, that if possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So this is, he's really making a point here. I was perfect. I consider it refuse. He uses some strong language there, refuse. That's like dung, right? We're talking like human waste, refuse. Christ is at the center of his of his salvation, of his righteousness. It's not our works. It's not it's Christ. It's not my parents went to church. It's Christ. It's Christ. It's not well, I got baptized when I was 13 and have have like the papers to prove it. It's Christ. It's not well, it's not I give money to the poor. It's Jesus. Jesus at the center. It's not, I homeschool my kids. It's Jesus Christ at the center of our faith. It's Christ alone. It's Christ alone. And he is your salvation. And we must, we got to give up our weak, vain attempts to conjure it up with our own righteousness. We should have, like Paul is saying, we should have no confidence in the flesh. Which means I don't trust, I don't have faith in my pedigree, or my good deeds, we must replace this with knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection. That is the gospel. I heard someone once say that this kind of a truth is hard to grasp for people like us. We're like, for middle-class churchgoers who clean up really nice, you know, it's hard for us to grasp because we're not walking train wrecks. I mean, some of us might be. But, you know, if you clean up nice, you you have this... It seems like oh man i'm I'm just you had that feeling that I'm really set up here, and that's a little hard for us to get it's kind of in this demographic, and it's a truth that we have to understand um you know don't smoke don't drink, don't chew, and don't go go with girls that do right it's like i um, I got that down, you know don't have to worry about that, I just have to like like just we just throw out the big sins, right at least the ones that everybody sees like i don't you know I, I'm not carousing you know I'm, Trying not to, you know, do all that stuff. But um, Paul goes one step further. He doesn't throw away his sins, he throws away his own righteousness. He throws away the best of what he has about himself. He throws away his pedigree, which was like perfect on paper. He was a, the Hebrew of Hebrews, right? Obeyed the law, did all the right things. He throws that away. And. I think sometimes we're concerned with just getting rid of my little my little bad habits or my my sins. Paul throws away his own righteousness. He has no confidence in the flesh. None. He takes a lifetime of all that's good about himself and he throws it into this industrial shredder, right? This is for, he t- he goes farther than us trying to throw our petty sins in the trash. He throws his perfection, his legalism, right? His pedigree into a shredder. Christ is our king and he is our source. He's the center of our justification and he's the center of our sanctification, right? Which is where we get better over time uh, through the work of the Spirit. Um, We don't pick up our own righteousness after salvation. We do like Paul did and we renounce it. We scorn it, right? We talk bad about it. Um, We follow his example because. It gets in the way of true righteousness, which is only found in Christ. Looking to our own righteousness keeps us from looking at Christ, and it keeps us from looking at the righteousness that we have by faith in Christ. We can't choose both. We can't look at both. They're on opposite sides. If I'm looking this direction, I'm not looking this direction. Um, To look at one is to not look at the other. Um, Calvin said of this passage, he says, ignorance of Christ is the sole reason why we are puffed up with vain, with a vain confidence. He says, where we see a false estimate of one's own excellence, where we see arrogance, where we see pride, there let us be assured that Christ is not known. On the other hand, as soon as Christ shines forth, all those things that dazzled our eyes with false splendor instantly vanish. Those things... Which had been gained to Paul when he was yet blind. He acknowledges they have been a loss after he saw the light. Why? Because they were a hindrance in all the ways of his coming to Christ. Right? It keeps us from Christ. Paul considers Christian maturity to be fully relying on Christ for righteousness. And that's where we're headed. It's so, it's so, so simple but profound. And we must understand this truth to the point to where we can think this way, as he says in verse 15. How am I going to think? It's Christ's righteousness that I have. That's the only thing I can hang on to. It's the only thing I can count on. It's a key component, component of Christian maturity. He wants nothing more than to know Christ. And by his example, that's, that's our goal as well. And the power of his resurrection... And so that he could share in both his death and sufferings. And what's he talking about there? Well, when Christ dies, we die in him and with him. And we what do we die to? We die to sin. We die to the old ways. And in Christ's resurrection, to share in that is to rise to a life of Christ's righteousness. In Christ, a representative. And then um, to uh knowing, then when Christ is... There's another parallel. When Christ is glorified, that's something that we can look forward to. That's, that's in our future. That's something that we can hang on to in great hope. Knowing Christ is getting your eyes off your own pedigree. Knowing Christ is getting your eyes off your own pedigree. Knowing the power of his resurrection is looking away from and discarding your own righteousness. So I wrote this little story. I was thinking about this. Like, What's a, what's a good example? So let's say you went swimming in the river. A big river, a fast river, and you went swimming and you drowned, right? The story starts off pretty bad. Uh, at first, you struggled to stay afloat, right? Nobody just drowns. There's a, there's a process, there's a struggle. So uh, you know, you could you're out there waving your hands, maybe yelling, water's getting in your mouth, you're doing some gurgling. Um, and soon you're just, you know, all that all that does is make you tired. And you go under, and then the next thing you know, you're stuck under a boulder out under the rapids, and you're dead. So then a lifeguard appears, right? Let's say a lifeguard would appear, and he finds you wedged under this boulder out there, and he pulls you up, and he gives you CPR. He drags you to the bank, he breathes into your mouth, and compresses your chest, and brings you back to life, right? That's what a good lifeguard would do. So he wraps you in a blanket, and he sets you up on this rock, and he says, hey… Here's where it's, <laughs> we don't want that again. Here's where it's safe to walk. You need to walk up here on the bank where it's safe and you don't have the skills to swim these rapids. Never go in that river again. Imagine this. Now, imagine you're extremely immature, right? We're learning about maturity today. Imagine you're extremely immature. Maybe you would your friends walk up and maybe you would brag a little bit about your valiant efforts to swim. Maybe you'd be like, well, you know, I, I was starting to go under, but just a little bit, you know, and then, man, you should have seen me I, Man, I was, my arms are thrashing. I was gulping water so fast. Oh, amazing. I was so, like, you should have seen it. Oh, well, and here's where I was, and then you jump in the water because you're really immature, and you start to show them, and the next thing you know, you're back under the boulder. Um, that <laughs> you Your own skills which weren't enough to save your life, are not worth hanging on to. They're not worth doing again after he's already put you up on the bank. They're not worth bragging about. Right? Bragging is to give glory to something. You wouldn't swim out there and you wouldn't tell your friends about your efforts. Your story would center on one thing and that would be the skills of this lifeguard. This lifeguard, that guy could swim carrying two people. This lifeguard can dive... 10 feet down, and pull me out from under a boulder in, with one breath. This lifeguard is amazing. He's super strong. He can swim in this, in this rapid river. That would be your story. Not, look, man, you should have seen me thrash. It was, yeah. You, you, wouldn't, you, wouldn't re, you wouldn't rely on your own efforts, and you wouldn't glory in it. It was his skill that saved you. And it's his continued instructions that keep you from drowning again. He alone, this lifeguard alone, is central to your rescue story. You contributed nothing to your rescue except water-filled lungs. The best you had resulted in your, in your doom and your, your drowning. You would have to brag about this guy. You have to brag about the lifeguard. You'd point to him and you'd say... That guy knows CPR like you wouldn't believe. He pulled three gallons of water out of my lungs. He's amazing. He can swim. He knows CPR. And he knows where I can safely walk. And he can, he's a good judge of my skill. He says I shouldn't go out in that river, and I'm going to obey him. Um, Calvin says to this, he says, the rule is this. We must renounce confidence in all things... That we may glory in Christ's righteousness alone, and preferring it to everything else, aspire after a participation in his sufferings, which may be the means of conducting us to a blessed resurrection. So at the moment of Christ uh, – sorry, at the moment of salvation, we know of Christ. There's this – with enough faith and knowledge given to us as a gift from the Holy Spirit, we understand what's going on enough to enter the faith. It's similar to the moment you meet—you would meet like your future spouse, right? Or your, you met your spouse at some point. And if you could remember back to that point, those of you who are married, you, you knew their name probably from a friend or somebody. You knew you had something in common, or you wouldn't have met them. Uh, you, you knew some little, little tiny basics. It's just a beginning. There's no real relationship there just yet. There's without further knowledge, you're. Future spouse at that point would just be an acquaintance, and so Paul is saying it's similar with the knowledge of Jesus. He's like, I desire to know this guy. If this if this lifeguard pulled me out of the river, this is what I'm about over here. This this is where my focus is. Man, this this guy is cool. He did for two people what I couldn't do for one person. He Paul wants to know Christ. He wants to know and participate in the things that Christ does. Um, He sets this example for us by writing out how much he desires this thing. Verse 10 and 11, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is knowledge that goes way beyond the basics. This is knowledge that goes beyond that first meeting where they're an acquaintance. To die to sin and bondage to the law because he died for your sin. right? This is to live a new life of righteousness because he rose from the grave. And he's your righteousness. That's what this means. To press on towards the finish line... The hope of glory, because he rose from the dead and went there first. He's our reward. This is knowledge that goes way beyond the basics. Knowing Christ is to be a partaker in Christ. Just like to know your spouse is to partake in everything with your spouse. It's an intimate life-encompassing relationship like no other. It must be a mature relationship that has no competing... Loves and no competing desires. Our eyes should be on Him alone, not on our past. This kind of knowing is not one of mere passion, but it includes our full intellect. We must really understand, and we we desire to know. We study. We want to know the shame He suffered. We want to know just what happened on the cross. We want to know His continuing work of sanctification in us. We want to know His attributes. Like what? What's this guy like? What's Jesus like? What can I learn about Him? We must consider and understand our part in this relationship made possible by him as we grow in faith, as we mature in faith, as we mature in our love for him and our trust for him. So Jesus is the center of our salvation. He's the author and finisher of our faith, and we must love him. We must know him and participate in his life, his death, and his resurrection. Just as, your mar- just as your marriage to your spouse doesn't, you know, consist of or, or end with that first time you met them, that's not the end of the story. There's no maturity there. That relationship ends if I say, "All right, yeah, I met my spouse," and then you're like, "Gone about my business." Like that—that's not a mature relationship it's starting right there. Um, We have to seek out all the knowledge we can about the Lord, and that's why we read the Bible. And my prayer, church, the prayer of all the elders for this church is that you guys would grow to love to read God's word. It is a gift, and when you have it, it's amazing. It's more than just words on a page, and that's our prayer. So we have to read. We have to read about Jesus. Having been brought to life and having been adopted into his family, we should strive to work towards him more and to love and know him more. So, in this passage, we're given these four practical applications as, as the end of this chapter wraps up to help us keep growing in our love and our knowledge of Christ, keeping him at the center of our salvation. And the first one is to look forward and not back. Look forward and not back. Verse 12, Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, Paul says, but if I, but I press on to make it my own, Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. He says, brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own. Very humble about this. He says, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straying forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. There's a lesson here. Look forward, not back. Semper avanti, as I heard somebody say, right? Always look forward. As Christians, we should keep this humble attitude, like Paul does, towards um, obtaining this ultimate goal. Even, even Paul, right, with his pedigree and his, his deep faith in Christ and, and all the righteousness that he had from Christ, he's saying, "Man, I'm not there yet. I'm working. I'm working, but I'm not there yet." He he kind of uses this imagery, like of an athlete running a race, and this imagery is easy for us to understand. The athlete that would focus on the starting line, imagine running a race, and you 're just you're, all your thoughts are back there and I, I remember coming off that line that was great, you know whatever that guy 's not going to win the race it 's the guy paying attention in this direction he 's going to win the race, or imagine about imagine an athlete that tripped, and all I can think about is that trip man that, there was like a lot of people right there on that corner and I'm sure I looked real bad, and that's going to be on social media. That guy's not going to win the race either because he, he's not focusing on the finish line. There's no use moping about the past failures, the past sins. But Paul says don't even mope about your past righteousness. Don't brag about it. Don't think about it. There's one thing that keeps you in that race, and that's Christ. That's the finish line. you got to press and look forward. Um. Always look to the finish line. So like this athlete, there's no time to sit and glory in our accomplishments or failures. And so if you believe it, then you will run the race. You will run the race of faith, pressing on towards Christ. Forget the past. Every the, there, There's such a this, this huge thing in our society where we dwell on, we unpack, we figure out what happened. I just want to, I could learn from this. You know, I just want to dwell over this bad thing and it's, it's looking backwards. It does nothing for us. Number two, Paul urges the Philippians to think like he does. He's saying, think like this to be mature. Look forward, not back. Now he says, you want to imitate me? Imitate the people who are mature. He's asking them to emulate him as he emulates Christ, as he imitates Christ. And he prays that God will reveal to them if they think Incorrectly, verse 15, let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Verse 16, only let us hold true to what we've attained. 17, he writes, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. This is why a lone Christian who never goes to church… Will soon run out of examples. Himself is his only example. Um, there's this is not a this is not a solo sport, right? This is not something we can do by ourselves. We need to be in the body of Christ. We, not only do we have Jesus supreme example, but we have smaller, more achievable examples of these, these people who are mature in Christ that we know. Um, these these uh, people are all around us, and Peter commands. Uh, the church elders to live as examples to the flock. And it's it's a heavy weight, friends. It's a heavy weight. So pay attention to the examples of your elders and make use of them. Look to them and others who are mature in the faith. It's not just the elders. There's other people here in mature of the faith who are worth imitating. Um, look for people who have been looking who have been walking with Jesus longer than you have, and who show a true joy in, in their faith, who demonstrate by their outward Actions that they are in love, in love with Christ. That's important. It doesn't mean to copy of their personalities. It doesn't mean you need to try to be like, like Dan because he knows the sound. Like I may not be a technical person. I don't want you know. I don't want to do what Johnny does because you know that's his thing. I'm not copying these these guys' personality. I'm not. I am looking at them and looking at the people who are mature in the faith, and I'm saying. What does that teach me about Christ? You can tell somebody who is worth imitating in that way. They will be joyful, God-exalting people. And they will make a good point to do what God sets before them. And that's, that's the charge to us all. Imitate the mature. Number three, Paul makes it clear in the beginning of this chapter, and again at the end, it's wise and proper to avoid anything that comes close to smelling like a false gospel. He's really uses that strong language at the beginning and he comes back to it at the end of this chapter. We don't just shoot for imitating what's right. We choose to avoid and not imitate what's wrong, right? It, it, it makes logical sense. Um, verse 18, he says, For many of whom I have often told you and Now tell you, even with tears, work as enemies of the cross of Christ. He's talking about the same people. He says in verse 19, Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Avoid these enemies of the gospel. If we want our faith to grow strong, we have to stay in the word where the truth is and avoid listening to these people that with this kind of sounds like truth, but let's say I haven't been paying close attention, they can get me off by one degree, and the next thing you know, I'm in the ditch. Um, they have their mindset on earthly things and their glory, their, their desires, their, their hope, and will earth, what will ultimately save them is faulty. It's not actually going to work. And they chase people like this. They, you know, he's saying they're chasing self satisfaction, their God is their belly. And they love to fill their natural appetites. That path is an earthly one, but you guys gotta remember, look forward. Look forward to heaven, where we're headed. Look forward to Christ, our reward. Number four. Finally, he says, Finally, keep in mind the finish line. There's something that awaits you. We're not just doing this thing because it's we look good and you know there's sort of a cultural the expectation of cleanliness is next to godliness or something, right? There's an actual finish line, and it's glorious. It's glorious, right? It's nothing short of utter paradise to be this close to God to where all his attributes are right there. And he'll change us so that we can actually not burn to a crisp, which I'm, I'm thankful for. Sorry, that was a sidebar. Um, so verse 20 and 21, he says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body, by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. You almost can't. Uh, that's hard to to really grasp. You got to have a bit of a, of an imagination. But as Miss Lynn would say, all this and heaven too. And I'm glad you're here, Miss Lynn. So, <laughs> think about this. She finds joy Miss Lynn finds joy I hope you don't mind In the midst of real hardships With, with health and different things she, she finds joy By looking at what's good now Right, we're, we're instructed to think about Good and pure things But she also looks She says all this in heaven too She's looking at what's to come Which is glorious And she knows it's glorious Because she reads the Bible That's, that's where this knowledge comes from It's going to be a bright and shining future where there's no more pain and there's no more tears and it'll all be wiped away. It'll be incredible. And so we need to emulate, we need to imitate the mature. We need to do like she does in this. We need to follow Christ through life. We have these hardships and we learn and we grow and it strengthens our faith in Christ. It's not faith for faith's sake faith in Christ. Hardships strengthen our faith in Christ while looking at the finish line which is glorious. That's where I'm headed. I'm not paying attention back here. This is what we can do. We can imitate. This is an example. We can imitate this. Peter says these present sufferings they don't hold a candle to the glory that awaits us. He says the person of Jesus Christ himself who will be there He's your reward. He's going to pull us across that finish line, and there's going to be nothing like it, I'm telling you. I'm telling you guys, this is true. Believe it. Read your Bibles. Um, 2 Corinthians 4, 7 and 18 says, Paul says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory that's all, beyond all comparison. I have a hard time understanding that, I'll be honest. As we look not to things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient pain and suffering, hardships, trials. But the things that are unseen are eternal, the last forever. Look forward to that finish line, my friends. It's coming. Let's pray. God our Father. We thank you for being here with us. We thank you for your word, which is so good. Continue to to grow us towards maturity in our Christian walk, Lord, in our faith, that we can joyfully do the work that you've set before us from before the earth was created. Just free us from the confidence in our own flesh, Lord. Free us from this faith in our own abilities and draw us to an ever-increasing faith in the work of Jesus alone. Help us to imitate Our Christ-like examples, Lord, help us to look forward to the finish line and not dwell on what's behind. Lord, may you safely guide each and everyone in this room to the glory and presence of Jesus as good and faithful servants. We trust you in this. In your name we pray. Amen.